It's next weekly Sabbath, the 22nd, and we will have services at 11 and 2 Mountain Time, 11 o'clock and 2 o'clock Mountain Time. So those who are out on the phone lines who are not able to be here, uh, please take note of that. And uh, then the next day, Sunday, we're actually meeting at 9 in the morning because we want to open that day up as much as possible to tour some uh, important historical and uh, biblical sites for those who want to go. Uh, some of you have seen them. Some of you have seen them more than once, but it's for anyone who hasn't or wants to see it again, for that matter. So, uh, this coming Sabbath, 11 o'clock, 2 o'clock Mountain Time, and then the following day, Sunday, will be at 9 o'clock Mountain Time. This is the day that the high priest would announce the third tithe year. This year we don't announce one beginning, we can announce one ending. <laughs> As this is the fourth, we'll begin the fourth year in the uh, seven-year land Sabbath cycle. So we have this fourth year, and then I think it's 2018, we have another uh, third tithe year. And then one more land cycle, it appears, will be the Jubilee in 2027. So maybe that will be the beginning of the millennium. We'll wait and see. But uh, I think there's a good possibility of that. Well, for today then, I guess it's almost traditional to go to Leviticus 23 on the Day of Atonement. So we'll go there today. Uh, here in Leviticus 23, it lists the holy days of God, the spring and the fall holy days. And if we come down after the Feast of Trumpets here in the context to verse 27, uh, he proclaims this day, Also on the tenth day of this seventh month there shall be a day of atonement. So there's uh, Trumpets is on the first day of the seventh month, and atonement is the tenth day, and then the Feast of Tabernacles begins on the fifteenth day of the seventh month. It is a day of atonement. Uh, we've broken that down over the years. It means at one mint or becoming at one. Uh, this is the day that Christ will marry his church where they become at one. Uh, we are in the dating period, <laughs> uh, the engagement period until Christ returns. He resurrects his saints on the Feast of Trumpets, and then the Day of Atonement pictures the day when they become at one with him totally and entirely. We have to be changed from physical to spirit on the Day of Trumpets because kind can only marry like kind. So once we have been transformed into spirit on the Day of Trumpets, or pictured by the Day of Trumpets, and probably it will happen on that day, uh, then we become fully at one, just as a, a human uh, couple become married and consummate the marriage and become one flesh, then we become one spirit with Christ. So the analogy carries through from the physical to the spiritual. So this is a day we're to be getting our garments ready. Uh, we'll find that Aaron put on his clean garments on uh, 
before beginning the ceremonies for the Day of Atonement. Let's continue reading the order here. This is a Day of Atonement on the tenth day. It shall be a holy convocation, a commanded assembly. We are to be together to you. And you shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the eternal. Afflict your souls, you can run down through Scripture, and that means fast. Uh, means fast without food or with water. And he'll tell us uh, how long that fast is to be here in a little bit. So it's a day to afflict our souls. Uh, Christ said, did he not, that... Uh, uh, he said he wouldn't drink wine again with us until he did it in his kingdom. And he, Well, the one I'm trying to remember is where he said that uh, when we are not with him, his disciples fast. Well, when we are with him, they don't fast. So I suspect that we will not need to fast on the Day of Atonement. We'll be at a wedding supper uh, in the kingdom of God, and the, the Day of Atonement will be replaced by a wedding supper. So he won't fast, and we won't fast. We don't fast when we're with him. So it's a holy convocation, commanded assembly, and they were to offer an offering made by fire to the eternal. Uh, we don't do the physical sacrifices now since Christ was and became and is our sacrifice. But we do bring a, a monetary offering. We bring our prayers uh, as an offering. And we bring ourselves as a living sacrifice and an offering to God. Verse 28, and you shall do no work in that same day, for it is a day of at one becoming at one. Uh, if there's any day that we need to think like Christ thinks and share his thoughts, it's today. Now, we're to do that every day, but it has special meaning on this day because it pictures a time when we will be fully at one with Christ. So, it is here to, to bring us into at one month for you before the eternal your God. Now, there's no question, I think, about the deep symbology that is involved here because there was a breach between mankind and God that began in the Garden of Eden with the first man, Adam, who sinned and took on a, an ungodly nature. And we have that ungodly nature. We are not by any means godly in our approach to anything. We are deceitful, desperately wicked. We are full of lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, and every other work of the flesh. So by nature, we are not godly. And that breach has to be healed. Now, when we begin to repent and learn the truth, and leading up to baptism, where we have the uh, inception of God's Holy Spirit, we begin to deal with that nature. And then, once we are baptized and have hands laid on and are conceived of the Spirit of God, we are to grow in the nature of God. We are to become more like Him, which means that we have an everyday duty, an every moment duty, to bring our thoughts into the control of Christ. He will not control our minds as Satan tries to do, 
but he wants us to control them with the help of his spirit. And it is uh, an incredible job that we have every day to try to think like Christ and react like Christ, to act like Christ, to be like Christ. So we have to become at one in our emotions, our feelings, our thoughts, our words with him. And there is right now probably as great a breach between man and God as there ever has been. Uh, we're quickly approaching, if we've not reached the point they were before Noah's flood, well, God's flood, but we name it after Noah, where every thought was evil continually. And that's pretty much the world we live in today, except for a very few who are fighting against that. And it is a very few, believe me. Twenty, thirty years ago, there were more of us than there are today. Now it's dwindled to where there are very, very few. And ultimately, God says only about a 10% remnant will remain who are still fighting that fight. Others may rejoin the fight in the Great Tribulation when they are put under famine, pestilence, and disease and begin to repent and are faced with death if they accept the mark of the beast. So about 30% will probably heal that breach at that time and turn back to God. But we need to turn to God now. And this day pictures that above all days. To become at one with Him. Verse 29, For whatsoever soul it be that shall not be afflicted in that same day, he shall be cut off from among his people. This is of paramount importance, this day of atonement. <clears throat> if we can't become at one with God ultimately, what happens? We go into the lake of fire. We die. It's that simple. Cut and dried. We have to become at one with God. He will not have a kingdom throughout all eternity that is not in perfect unity, in perfect accord, in total agreement, thinks alike, and acts alike. That's the way it's going to be. Uh, it used to be that way, and then Satan rebelled. And Satan is very, very much bound up in this Day of Atonement and in the meaning and the symbolism and the, uh, the rituals that Aaron was to go through. And we're going to go through those in a little bit. And I hope make it so very clear uh, what the problem is. And that if Satan uh, is bound and kept away from God's kingdom, then those people who will not heal the breach between them and God and become at one they will be cut off in a lake of fire. So when he says that day will, that person will be cut off from among his people, uh, it meant it then to a great degree in a physical sense. But when you extrapolate that into the spiritual understanding, that means eternal cutting off. It means death. No more, no more to be alive and with God and with his people. Well, verse 30, And whatsoever soul it be that does any work in that same day, the same soul will I destroy from among his people. Now, obviously, if we're afflicting our souls and not eating, we are not preparing food. Uh, on the other holy days, it does say that no work is to be done except the preparation of food. 
Day of Atonement, no preparation of food, no work whatsoever. Uh, what does human work do? Human work occupies your time and your mind. Even the cooking and preparing of food, you have to get your mind on the food and on how long you're cooking it and whether it's burning and whether you mixed it right and all kinds of things, your mind has to be on the food. Well, on this day, he wants no work whatsoever done because we are to be pursuing the goal of having every thought in agreement with God's thoughts. So we have nothing in our way, nothing to prevent that. Even as I dress today, my mind had to be on the things that Aaron did on this day. Because he washed his body and he put on clean clothes. So I made sure uh, today that I put on clothes that I had not worn since they had been washed or cleaned. No, just a little physical thing. But at the same time as I was dressing, I was thinking of the holy garments that the bride is to wear to be married to Christ. Because this day pictures that. And I think a bride generally dresses a lot more carefully on her wedding day than she does any other day of the year, or of her life for that matter, since she's only really supposed to have one of those per lifetime unless death does us part and we remarry or something. So this is a day that whatever we do, uh, he allows us to dress, thankfully, uh, but even that, we can be thinking of how God would have us dress for the wedding supper. So even what little we do has some meaning, and we can tie it in. Uh, so anyone who does any work, he repeats it, the same soul will I destroy from among his people. So destruction and destroy is mentioned, and that's what the lake of fire does. Verse 31, again, you shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. So this wasn't a temporary holy day. This was forever, as long as we're human. It shall be to you a Sabbath of rest, and you shall afflict your souls. So not only do you rest physically, but you also fast. What does fasting do? It humbles us. It makes us realize that if God had not provided food on this earth, things that are good to eat, we would die. So afflicting our souls on this day helps turn our minds to God. They aren't on food. They aren't on drink. They aren't on the daily necessities of life. Our thoughts are to turn to God and to the fact that He alone is the power of the universe. Without him, nothing would exist. We wouldn't exist. Everything would fly apart if his laws were not there to sustain the earth and the universe. So it's a day to afflict our souls and to turn to God. Isaiah 58 makes it very clear that a proper fast is not to get something for ourselves, but to turn to God. And the Day of Atonement, certainly above all on that, is we are to turn to our Bridegroom Christ. So, afflicting our soul 
is very much a part of looking forward to being prepared to be the bride of Christ. Now, once you're all prepared, once you're ready, then you can have a wedding supper. But leading up to that time is all prep time. It's all getting ready for the wedding supper. That's what we're here on this earth to do, is get ready for the wedding supper. And this is the day that pictures that wedding. So we fast and prepare ourselves to have the right attitude fitting to be joined with our perfect husband-to-be. Then he explains the timing. In the ninth day of the month at evening, from even unto even shall you celebrate your Sabbath. So the day begins at sundown. It makes it very, very clear here, in spite of the fact that some believe the day begins with dawn. Uh, this Sabbath, this day, this Day of Atonement, begins at the end of the night. Now, earlier here, on verse 27, it says that, that the Day of Atonement is on the tenth. The tenth day is the Day of Atonement. So, when it mentions the evening of the ninth, it means at the sundown, at the end of the ninth. So, sundown on the ninth begins the tenth and lasts from even to even. From sundown to sundown is the Day of Atonement. People can twist scriptures and try to make dawn uh, the the beginning of the day, but that doesn't fit. It won't work. And this scripture has to be applied also to Passover. If you keep it on the 14th day at even, as it instructs us there in Exodus 12, It is the evening or the end of the 13th, beginning the 14th, because it clearly states the 14th is the day of Passover. So it has to begin, just like Day of Atonement, end of the 13th, but the 14th is it. That precludes keeping it the end of the 14th, beginning the 15th, because God explains right here how he counts it, and Passover All days are counted the same way, sundown to sundown. From even to even shall you celebrate your Sabbath. Verse 33, And the Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Oh, we don't need to go on into that. That begins Feast of Tabernacles. That's for next week. Let's go back to Leviticus 16 now and pick up some of the things that I've alluded to at least briefly so far. Uh, chapter 16 of Leviticus. The Eternal spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered before the Eternal and died. That story's in Leviticus 10. They were not doing what they were supposed to be doing. And the Eternal said to Moses, Speak to Aaron your brother that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat which is upon the ark that he die not. I gave a sermon two days ago on the Sabbath about the Ark of the Covenant and a little bit about the tabernacle and how holy they were before God and His dwelling place and only one man could go in there. Moses couldn't go in there. Only one man could go in there, the high priest, and then only once a year uh, because that was the holy place and uh, God dwelt there. Now, 
the symbolism spiritually, of course, is that Christ is the ultimate high priest, and he is the only one who is at the throne of God, in the presence of God at this time. There were high priests after Aaron, and it says there will be a high priest even here at the end of men. But Christ is the spiritual high priest, and he is the only one allowed at the throne of God today. Now, through him, we can go before that throne of God in prayer, but we can't go there because of this great breach. We're still human, and no man has ascended to that throne and can't until he's changed to spirit. Then we will be allowed to be in the presence of the Father and the Son. So this is very important. If Aaron had gone in there at any other time, he would have died. Even as Uzzah, uh, he didn't go into the tabernacle and into the Holy of Holies, but the Ark of the Covenant was there on the cart, and when he touched it, he died. God means business. For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat, God speaking. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat. Now what does Matthew 19 tell us to do? It tells us we should be donning the uh, garments of righteousness, the, the holy garments of righteousness. And he had to put on the holy linen coat, which represents the righteousness that we must put on. His was declared holy uh, as physical material and accoutrements. We are to have holy spiritual character. That's what this day represents. So even as he put on the holy linen coat, we are to put on a holy uh, character says back in Isaiah 49 that we are to dress ourselves as a bride does to prepare to meet Christ. He shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh, and he shall be girded with a linen girdle, and with a linen miter shall he attired. These are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water, and so put them on. So he had to clean his body, then put on clean clothes, holy garments, and then he would be prepared to go through the rituals that he was to go through uh, that we will now uh, look at because they have great spiritual meaning for us today as we sit here on the Day of Atonement only a few years before Christ returns to the earth. And we need to be holy by the time he returns. Do we have any work to do in the next few years? Uh, we need to be busy getting ready for that final atonement. Verse 5, And he shall take of the congregation of the children uh, two kids of the goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. You don't find a bullock being offered for Christ. Uh, but bullocks were offered uh, for human sin. And make an atonement for himself and for his house. So the bullock was to cleanse Aaron before he was to offer further sacrifice, which represents, as we'll see, uh, Christ and Satan. And those had to be done from someone fit to do it. 
Verse 7, And shall take the two goats and present them before the Eternal at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, I won't go there, but there is a scripture which says that the Passover could be a lamb or a kid. Uh, we always use a lamb, or we will tend to eat lamb maybe a little bit around the Passover season, because Christ is pictured as the Lamb of God, and often referred to as a lamb. Uh, but at the same time, he could be pictured at Passover by a, a kid of the goats. And here you have two goats that are presented, and one of them will represent Christ. And present them before the Eternal at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Something about the nature of sheep and goats. Goats become more independent as they grow older. Uh, but if you've been around baby goats, they become tamer and more lovable in many respects even than lambs do. Uh, we have both. And it's much easier to make friends and have a close relationship with a goat than it is with a sheep. They they respond more. Uh, we have a this year, for instance, we have a a kid goat and a lamb that were orphaned and were fed by bottle. Well, the goat comes running right up to you and jumps up on you and wants petted and patted and loved, and the sheep will come running up to you, but he doesn't want patted and loved. <laughs> uh, so. Maybe goats get colored wrongly somewhat sometimes, uh, but a, a kid of the goats can be a very wonderful, lovable little animal. And the only reason I make that point is that you could, for the Passover, take a young goat or a young lamb, and either could represent Christ, and a, and a goat is not necessarily really independent and and uh, mean or whatever, as goats are often pictured. So it's a it's a true representation. I'm saying when you have a young goat like a young lamb. Anyway, verse eight. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the eternal, and one and the other lot for a scapegoat, or in the Hebrew, an azazel. People get confused here, and they think ultimately that since, this, since Israel's sins were pronounced on this is Azel later on in the context, that that represents Christ. But let's see that there's a difference there. Herbert Armstrong had this one right. Uh, scapegoat or Azazel can mean one who went himself, one who became independent. He took off away from the flock. And the universe, you had the throne of God and all the holy angels about it. And Satan took one-third and went away on his own, departed. Now, from the very beginning, Azazel uh, takes on that meaning. So you have these two goats that are brought. And a choice has to be made. Now, recall that after Christ fasted 40 days and 40 nights... He who was the present ruler of this world, uh, the prince of the power of the air, had been given oversight of the earth. Satan is the current ruler of the earth. Do we understand that? 
What does the world go by? His rules. His ways. If you can call them rules. But his ways is what the earth goes by. Now, Christ is not here yet, and he is not ruling the earth, or you wouldn't see all this confusion and anger and bitterness and hatred and war and animosity uh, and the horror that is the human existence, for the most part, under Satan's rule. Now, when Christ had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, Satan offered him rulership of the world. How could he do that? Because he was the ruler of the world. That's how he could do that. Now, what were the conditions is the key. He says, if you will come and worship me, I will let you rule the earth. So who would have been ultimately in charge still? Satan, with Christ under him, as his second-in-command ruler of the world. <laughs> so even what he offered, he could offer legitimately since he was the ruler of the world, but it was also a lie and a deception. So when Christ did that 40 days and 40 nights of fasting and then was tempted of the devil... He qualified to replace Satan as the ruler of this world. Now, it's like being elected to president of the U.S. You have the election, and then you are the president-elect. You've been elected, but you haven't taken office until January 20th, I think it is, when you're actually installed in the office. So Christ is the ruler-elect of the earth today, but he has not yet taken his office. He will do that upon his, about his third return. When he brings his saints with him to rule the earth, and the new heavens and the new earth come down with the Father, at the beginning of the millennium. So anyway, uh, these, these two goats were to be brought, and that is pictured by the uh, temptation of Christ when actually Satan and Christ came before God. That's what they were doing. A choice had to be made between who would be the ruler of the earth, because one was about to be supplanted. He'd been there, and Christ qualified by defeating Satan at that temptation to take over. So there is where the decision was actually made that Christ would rule the earth when he defeated Satan. Now, that was not confirmed until his death. Let's, let's put this on a legal basis. Because he had to finish out his life and his ministry, and he had to die having never sinned. So he qualified when he defeated Satan. He disqualified Satan is what it amounted to. But then he was fully qualified himself when he finished a life without sin. And then he was designated fully as the replacement for Satan. Okay, so uh, he cast two lots, verse 8, on the goats. One lot for the eternal and the other lot for an Azazel, or one who went off on his own. So only one of these in the context here from the very beginning is for the eternal. The other is on his own. It's what his name means. That becomes important a little later on. 
And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell, and offer him for a sin offering. So the one that was for the Lord would be a sin offering. Christ is the sin offering. Satan is never a sin offering. Now, sins will be pronounced on him, responsibility for them, but not for a sin offering. Christ is the one who was offered for our sins. He's the one who died. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the Azazel shall present it alive, not killed, but presented alive before the Eternal, to make an atonement with him, and to let him go for an Azazel into the wilderness. So he was to be presented alive before God, not killed, and there was an atonement or an agreement made between him and God, and then he was sent into the wilderness. Now we'll read about what that agreement was here in a little bit. Now, can that goat, right off the bat, represent Christ? Whenever in the Bible, anywhere, do you find Christ being sent out into the wilderness alone? Never. He was always with his father, and then he came to dwell with men. He went back to his father. He is going to come back and change men into God take them to his father to be married, and then he and the father and those people will come back to rule the earth at the beginning of the millennium. After they have another trip down here at the end of the seven last plagues to subdue the rest of mankind, he and his saints with him, and he'll have on a garment dipped in blood at that, at that return. But the final return is when the beginning of the millennium, the bride comes down adorned for her husband, and the New Jerusalem, the Father and the Son, become the temple at the beginning of the millennium. Adequately proved, I think, in the series on uh, how exclusive is the church. So this one goes into the wilderness. Well, what do we hear about Satan? Revelation 20. A fit man, someone qualified, takes him out into the wilderness and turns him loose alone. So Revelation 20 echoes Leviticus 16 here. Uh, Satan is the one who is not killed. He was given life forever. And God will not take that life forever away from him. It was a gift he gave him. Now, Satan rebelled. And he will live in rebellion and he will live in hatred apparently throughout all eternity, but not around anybody. He'll be sent into the desert, the wilderness, alone. The blackness of darkness forever, as Peter puts it. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. So he brought the bullock and the two goats. He cast lots on the goats and decided which would be which. And then before he proceeds, he kills the bullock and makes a sacrifice for he and his house uh, for his sins, so that he is clean before God. And that, isn't it Paul who writes in Hebrews that a high priest has to go and, and uh, make reconciliation for himself before he can represent the people? So that's exactly what Aaron was doing here, uh, was offering this for his family and himself. Then he could offer uh, an offering for the people. 
as we'll get to here in a moment. Verse 12, And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Eternal, and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it within the veil. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Eternal, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. So he was to go into the tabernacle and into the Holy of Holies and put this on the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. Once a year, on atonement. This is the holiest day of the year. Even more so than Passover. Now how can that be? Christ lived a perfect life, died as a perfect offering for our sins, and that certainly is a very, very holy day, and second only to atonement. Now why do I say that? Because Christ lived perfectly and died for our sin, that is a beginning. That is a beginning. It is a beginning of a relationship between us and our Father in heaven and Christ as potential heirs with Christ, as potential bride of Christ. So it's an introduction to Christianity, whereby our sins are forgiven, we're clean before God, and through the laying on of hands pictured by baptism, even as Passover pictured baptism, we receive His Holy Spirit, and a growth period begins. But what makes atonement more holy even than Passover is that it's the consummation. It's the finish of the process. Now, what's important, or more important, let's say, in a foot race? The starting gun (laughs) or the end of the race and see who won? Does Paul point us to the start of our race? Or does he say, no, let's race hard, everyone runs hard, and then at the end we receive the reward for winning the race? So he focused on, in his life, on finishing the race. And when it was almost done, he says, I've finished the course, I've won the race. So atonement becomes, in that sense, more holy, more important even than Passover. Passover is the beginning with the forgiveness of sin. From atonement on, there will be no sin. We will never sin again really from trumpets on that, but the marriage itself is not consummated until shortly thereafter. Trumpets, we become spirit and we will not sin again. Uh, but the, the, the joining and the actual marriage is more important than engagement, right? So there's your answer to that. No work. You could even prepare food on Passover, but no work on this day. And he would die. And he only went in there one day of the year, and that was on atonement, not Passover. Now, I'm not trying to diminish Passover in any way by saying this. I'm just trying to show the relative uh, importance in the plan and the purpose and what each represents. And the end is always better than the beginning. Uh Verse 14, And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward, and before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the, of the blood with his finger seven times. Now, they had sacrifices through the year. But this time the bullock was to represent him as the high priest, 
And since he was a type of Christ, his high priest, he had to go in and be fully cleansed in order to represent Christ. Then and only then, in verse 15, shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So the bullock was sprinkled on the mercy seat for Aaron and his family. That then qualified him to go in for the people. Just as Christ was sacrificed himself before God and accepted of God as the firstborn of many brethren, and then and only then could he go before the Father as an atonement or a mediation for us. So the symbolism is exact. So Christ now offers, or is offered for us. Verse 16, And he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, and because of their transgressions and all their sins. Wages of sin is death. They'd die. They'd sin. So the only way on, a, on this physical level here that that could be uh, removed was through blood. In this case, the blood of a goat representing Christ. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. So, as they stood there on that day, they still had uncleanness. Even as we today, who came here to represent and to picture a time of no uncleanness, of total, complete holiness, we still come flawed as human beings. This isn't the final one. This is only a picture of it. But we need to be working that direction. Uh, so he shall do this uh, for the tabernacle of the congregation that remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Verse 17 then, And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goes in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. So Christ had to be himself clean, and then he had to be sacrificed in his blood for all the congregation of Israel. And it's there for the congregation of Israel, even though the congregation of Israel does not by and large accept it. Only a few have at this point. Total will be 144,000 at the first resurrection. Verse 18, And he shall go out to the, the altar that is before the eternal and make an atonement for it, cleanse the altar first, and shall take the blood of the bullock and of the blood of the goat and, upon, and put it upon the horns of the altar round about, and sprinkle the blood upon it with his finger seven times, just as the word of God is uh, purified seven times, the altar had to be purified seven times. Even as gold and silver, uh, it indicates, I think, in Malachi, is purified seven times. Maybe, it, maybe that's not the right reference, but uh, I think it's in Malachi. And hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he has made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Now, at this point... The offering for sin 
has already been killed. It's been sprinkled on the mercy seat. Uh, it has been there to atone for all the uncleanness of the children of Israel, even as Christ is offered for all the uncleanness of all of us. Now comes the other one. Let's see what's done here. He shall bring the live goat. People try to say this one represents Christ. No way. This one's alive. It's not sacrificed. Its blood isn't shed. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a qualified, timely, or fit man, Revelation 20, into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. Now, there's a difference in what happened to this one and what happened to the goat for the sin offering. The wages of sin is death. The, the goat for the sin offering was done to expunge our sins. Now, this one had our sins laid on him, but he lived. Now, isn't that a perfect parallel with Satan, who was there at the beginning of the sin of man? Mankind had not sinned until Satan entered the garden and tempted man. And man, every man ever since, has sinned except one, Christ. Now, where does the guilt or the blame for sin go? Had Satan not entered that garden, Adam and Eve would have continued to live in the grace and the light of God, continued in obedience, they would have ultimately been offered the tree of life, eternal life, had they not sinned. And we wouldn't have needed Christ's sacrifice because they never would have sinned. They were sinless until Satan entered. Now, does Satan pay for their sin with his death? No. He's got reserved for him the darkness and blackness of the wilderness forever. But is he guilty? For causing us to sin? You bet he is. So, all the sin from the first man, Adam, down to the second man, Adam, and since the second man, Adam, Satan has guilt for. He's the one who tempts us and pulls us away because of our nature. It says, God tempts no man. It says, we're tempted of our own flesh. Well, what did Satan use? Our own flesh. He used it on Adam and Eve. When he asked certain questions, it awoke greed, it awoke rebellion, it awoke uh, a desire to worship another god other than God. Human nature came alive right then. And Satan has been influencing us ever since. And there's not going to be peace on earth until Satan is bound a thousand years. Then there will be peace. So all the sins that have ever committed on this earth, 
the blame or the guilt falls on Satan for having perpetrated them through us. Now, that doesn't mean we're not guilty of our sins, because God tells us that we are to repent of them and quit sinning. So we're responsible, but he holds the guilt for starting the process and continuing it. And he's the one who will be sent into the wilderness alone. Christ is going to live with his bride and his children forevermore in peace and comfort and safety with the Father, not be sent into the wilderness. There's no place in the Bible that that is the case. And thankfully, we won't have to deal with Satan anymore. He'll bear upon him as a living goat to a land not inhabited. He shall let the goat go in the wilderness. Now, what happened to that goat? They did this every year in ancient Israel when the Day of Atonement came. What happened to that goat? It was a domestic goat. It was a young goat. It was sent in the wilderness to fend for itself just as Satan departed from God and went on his own. Chances are great that that goat did die in the wilderness uh, on its own, but it wasn't killed. Probably a lion or a a coyote or something got it or it starved or or died of thirst or whatever. Uh, A young kid goat left all by itself out in the wilderness probably isn't going to survive. Well, all of the things that Satan perpetrated from the rebellion in the heavens with the angels to his rebellion with man uh, will be destroyed. But he will be left alive. And that's the way this story ends. Now, what happened to that goat was neither here nor there. Whatever ultimately happens to Satan is between him and God. See, there was an agreement made, an atonement made for that goat. And the agreement was, you're going to give up your rule of the angels, you're going to give up your rule of man, and you're going to go into the desert alone. While those who obey God are going to live in peace and happiness and security forevermore. Well, that's what's being depicted here with these two goats. Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation and shall put off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. Uh, not take them out and use them as ordinary clothes, but they were to be left there at the holy place. And he shall wash his flesh with water in the holy place and put on his regular garments and come forth. So he could only wear those holy garments at a certain time, and then they were to be left there. He was to be washed again. Hadn't been long since he'd had a bath, but he'd killed some animals and gotten grimy and dirty and dusty and bloody. Put on his regular garments and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make an atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering shall he burn upon the altar. And he that let go the goat for the scapegoat shall wash his clothes. He is unclean from having been in Satan's presence and bathe his flesh in water, and afterward come into the camp. Now, aren't we to put on holy garments before we go to the wedding? We've touched Satan. We've been in Satan's world. We've gone by his ways. We have to be cleansed and put on holy garments. 
just as this one had to be cleansed after having contact with that goat. And the bullet for the sin offering, the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall one carry forth without the camp, and they shall burn in the fire their skins and their flesh and their dung. Be gone. Nothing uh, surviving. And he that burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in water, and afterward he shall come into the camp. See, those represented sin. Uh, the bullock represented Aaron and his family's sin, and the other goat represented the sin offering goat, represented the sin of all Israel. Well, they had to be completely used, uh, just as we have to have the complete sacrifice of Christ, and then we wash and we depart from that which represents sin. So all this washing and everything has to do with getting as far from sin as possible, being as clean as possible as we can be. So we're to be spiritually as clean as possible when we approach the first resurrection and the wedding supper. Verse 29, And this shall be a statute forever to you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourns among you. No servants, no one doing any work. So he's repeating what he said at the beginning. Because uh, this is a very, very important day and represents the ultimate, the marriage of the Lamb. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the eternal. It shall be a Sabbath of rest to you. You shall fast by a statute forever. And the priest whom he shall anoint and whom he shall consecrate to minister in the priest's office in his father's stead shall make the atonement and shall put on the linen clothes and even the holy garments. Now get a clue, you who think that we're all uh, apostles and we can all anoint and we can all baptize and we can all be we the people and rule ourselves. There was a distinct hierarchical pass down of the power from the high priest to whom he would, whom Aaron would appoint in his stead as he grew old to die. And that has never changed. God appoints, not man. Well, God inspires men who have been appointed to appoint others. That's very clear in the New Testament. Anyway, let's not get into that. But that's a, that's certainly a definite uncleanness that is in the church today. And that is the uncleanness that occurred uh, at the throne of God in heaven. It's satanic. What did Satan do? He became an Azazel. Went out on his own. He said, we the people will rule. We're just as good as God. We should be ruling. I'm just as good looking as God. I'm just as smart. In fact, I think I'm smarter than God. And I should be ruling the universe. That was the attitude of Satan. And it's the same attitude people get when they say, I will depart from those whom God has appointed, and we will rule ourselves. It's, it's, it's satanic. It's not godly. Anyone who does that is worshiping Satan the devil. <clears throat> And he shall make an atonement for the holy sanctuary, 
and he shall make an atonement for the tabernacle of the congregation and for the altar, and he shall make an atonement for the priests and for all the people of the congregation. Now, isn't that Christ's function? But he is an atonement for everything. And Satan is the atonement for nothing. He bears the guilt and the blame, but he doesn't pay the penalty. And this shall be an everlasting statute to you to make an atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Eternal commanded Moses. So Passover is the beginning of Christ forgiving our sins. And it culminates in the Day of Atonement and the marriage of the Lamb to his bride. And there will never be any more sin. So this is the ultimate uh, removal of sin as an atonement. We'll stop short today, and we're not eating, so it's just as well.